This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Hi there, this is Mike Lord. This is Tom Roche. And we're here with Tabletop Genesis for you for this for this week. I was going to say weeks, but we're not going to be weekly. For this month's podcast, we are going to t- cover... What are we covering this week, Tom? This month, Tom? Well, we are going to be talking about Peter Gabriel's first solo album from 1977. Uh, what is that called? What, what's, the, what's the name of that album? Oh, it's the one called Peter Gabriel. Oh, okay. Peter Gabriel. That's interesting. Exactly. So we'll have to figure <laughs> out which so- what songs are on that at Peter Gabriel album. But speaking of Peter Gabriel, yes. uh, I'm, I'm sensing an intruder. Oh, wait. <laughs> would, but, you like, would you like to uh, introduce our intruder? Yes, Mike? yes. We have an intruder, a, a, a invited guest uh, for, this, uh, for this month's podcast. David, why don't you introduce yourself? I like creeping across uh, floors. <laughs> <laughs> I like peeking in drawers. Yeah, this is David Priest, and it is a pleasure to join you, Mike and Tom. I've been, uh, as you know, longtime listener and uh, sl- only slightly a shorter time friend. Yes. And it's a it's a, just a pleasure to be able to talk about this and and join the circle. Yes. So my background is with Genesis goes back to when I was relatively young. And then I obviously expanded outward in the circles to former members and related acts like like everyone has their own journey, right? My journey began when it must have been, if I do the calculation, when I was about eight years old, when I heard wow. the song Misunderstanding. Ah, sure. Which is no longer one of my favorites, but for <laughs> some reason, at that exact moment in time, something in that song struck me. And I have a vivid memory of going to a department store in Illinois where I was growing up. And at that point, the department store had a small little area that sold vinyl records of 45s, 33s. And I remember my poor mother standing there as I insisted that the worker at this store play the misunderstanding single (laughs) over and over and over again as I decided whether I was going to spend the whatever it was then you know probably a buck or two yeah if even that much yeah whatever it was that was an absolutely massive investment on my part at the time given that I didn't have money um in my memory I probably sat there for an hour making them play it over and over again while I decided if I was going to buy it Ultimately, I did not buy it, which Uh I think is absolutely horrible. This poor clerk was suffering with this little brat. But that that stuck in my memory. But I didn't become a big fan. I'm eight years old. That's a little too early to become obsessed, uh, I think, with music. Um, It was really a little bit later. It was uh, in the... In the earlier, or a little bit further on in the 80s, probably with the self-titled album okay. um, that I started really getting into it. And then with Peter Gabriel's So album, that's when I made the connection that there was Genesis before this Phil Collins voice. Right. And I became fully obsessed with 
Phil, um, with Peter's solo career, with all of the early albums, chasing them down on cassette at the time sure. in the mid 80s and eventually getting my hands on all of them and going to use book, use record stores and finding bootlegs of some of the concerts and things. Right. So yeah, that's that's my my Genesis story and it's I've I've seen Genesis live of course. Um I've seen Peter several times. I've right. seen Steve Hackett even more times. I have not seen Phil or Mike solo. Really? And that's kind Interesting. of a, an oddity. Yeah. For me still is I would have thought that one of the Mike and the Mechanics tours at least I would have found a way to get to them. Yeah. And Phil Collins certainly was touring when I was uh, old enough to be interested. Right. Uh, but yeah, I've got thoughts on just about everything related to <laughs> because it was my obsession for many many years right. and I continue to uh, have dreams where the lyrics and uh, the memories with with discovering the music come back to me. And in your professional life, you do something not related to music at all. That's right. Not not yet. I haven't found a way to merge the two. <laughs> right. But but you're giving me ideas, Mike. Right. Um, yeah, I decided to go into government when I finished with graduate school. So I took my political science degree and put it to no use at all and decided to become an intelligence officer at the CIA. And I did that for a while, working mostly on Middle East and counterterrorism issues. Then I left the government and puttered around doing a variety of different things in the private sector mm -hmm. and nonprofit sector and decided to start researching books as well. So mm -hmm. I've published two books on the presidency, one on high-level intelligence and how presidents mm -hmm. use it, and then another one on how presidents leave office or are pushed to do so, which has certainly been relevant recently. Yes. So that's what I do now. Um, I help run the Lawfare Institute in Washington, D.C., which talks a lot about national security, law, policy, right. rule of law issues. So we've been very busy for the yes. last four years and looking forward to another busy year now. Yes. But got to tell you, um, with the whole pandemic and the working from home full time, mm -hmm. I've had a lot more time to be playing music while working almost every day. Very nice. And I've revisited just about everything. So yes, the worlds have collided at Excellent. least a little bit. Right. And you've, uh, and you've, the, and, oh, go ahead, Tom. If the world's colliding, I, I remember, uh, Stacy and Simon had really asked you about your CIA past, and that's actually why they're not here anymore. They <laughs> They've been eliminated. They just, they just kind of I think if you just say that they're no longer with us and just leave it at that, mm. and just have that air of mystery. Discretion is the better part of valor, as the saying goes. So. You know, it's kind of like with this spinal tap with the missing drummers when they, they, they talked about the bizarre gardening accident that the police said was best left unsolved. unsolved. Right. Understood. So, so yes, your master plan has worked out all these years. It's good to hear. It, it has. And uh, I'm, I'm sad that we're not in person yes. um, doing this, that we're doing this remotely because a very fond memory of just a few years ago was getting together with the two of you Yes. and going to um, Steve Hackett's show together right. in New York City. That is correct. And it was a great night, and as I recall, afterwards we went out for drinks with one half of the Genesis Piano Project, Adam. Right. Um, that, that was after the. Comes. Yep. That was just. That was one of. That was at the end of 2019, in September. That was that because. Or 20, maybe. That was earlier. Uh, it was well. We we had gone to a well, different Steve Hackett show. Right, right. That was that was when we went with Adam with the half of the piano project to the to the Beacon Theater. Before that, you, me, and Tom had gone to see Hackett at um, the Best Buy Theater in New York. 
but so we actually so you and I, you, yes it's uh believe me i i have i have a steel trap up here that keeps all this uh keeps all this in order so that's when that's when tom was there also the last time it was just you me and adam going to that so so that's how that worked out and everything good memory but yeah. tom it is good to see and hear you again it's been yes. too long Mike, I see and hear you more often, but uh, yes. again, it's good to be chatting with both of you. Indeed. Now. Indeed, that is Welcome. the case. So so we are going to segue now into talking about Peter Gabriel 1, car, as people sometimes describe it. Tom, would you like to take over the Wikipedia responsibilities? I will do my best not to lapse into a British accent, but here <laughs> we go. Hello. Peter Gabriel is the debut solo album by English progressive rock singer-songwriter Peter Gabriel and the first of four with the same eponymous title. Released in on 25th of February 1977, it was produced by Bob Ezrin. Gabriel and Ezrin assembled musicians including guitarist Robert Fripp and his future King Crimson bandmate Tony Lebanon bass. On the album's release, Gabriel began touring with a seven-piece band under his own name. The album went to number seven in the UK and number 38 in the US. The album is often called either Peter Gabriel One or Carr, referring to the album cover by London artist Peter Christopherson. Music streaming services currently refer to it as Peter Gabriel One colon Carr. <laughs> Gabriel's first solo success came with the album's lead singer, Salisbury Hill, which Gabriel has said is about being prepared to lose what you have for what you might get. It's about letting go. Very good. So there we have it. So overall, what are what are our general impressions of this album? Maybe a, a memory of it, or you know, if there's anything that really sticks out at, at you from first hearing this album. What are your kind of just general impressions or initial impressions of this collection of songs? I'll start off. I I don't remember initial impressions of every track. I do remember when I got my hands on it, which was almost certainly after getting my hands on uh, Peter Gabriel 4 or Security and probably Peter Gabriel 3, Face Melt. I do remember thinking with the beginning, with uh, the first track, that I thought there was a problem with the cassette, Um, (laughs) in part because cassette quality in general was so shoddy. But I also remember just that the, the, the row, low rumbling that it begins with. Mm. And I, I thought, well, that that doesn't sound like a, a Genesis opening. Right? <laughs> they they right. often have they don't always have bombastic beginnings, although, you know, we, we've certainly had some of those. But it, it, it sounded like it was mixed wrong or that the cassette was just a little wobbly or warbly in the background. And only since then have I realized that actually it's a really good sound. I like the opening, but at the time that was my reaction is, wow. And then of course that it's just so strikingly different than both much of his later catalog and some of the Genesis stuff that led up to it. So for for me, it really does stand out as something largely different. Yeah. I think, I think like me, I got into Gabriel when he was really hitting the scene in 86 with so uh, kind of like I did with Genesis and Invisible Touch, and then decided to work backwards. I think maybe the next album I'd gotten was Plays Live, just because I knew it had a smattering of stuff from all his past uh, records. And this might have been, I don't know, third or fourth that I got, but just the 
overall weirdness at the opening when it started. Obviously, it goes from the weirdness to a simple pop track, and then it goes into a rock track, and then goes into a quieter track, a jazzy blues track, uh, a cappella weird excuse me track. Uh, so it just seemed to be anything you were looking for, this album would give you that because it has such a mix and a variety of sounds which I learned later as I got his whole catalog that it was kind of him getting his feet wet and just saying alright I'm free of the Genesis machinery of having to this is how we write a song this is how we do it I'm just going to experiment with with this sound I'm going to experiment with that sound and I think it felt like it took him a couple albums to, to get that experimenting not out of a system but to kind of hone it to a way that you, we finally got with uh, kind of a more consistent sound with three, but it was just the, the weirdness. I think if I had to put the, this into one word, it's it's awesome, but it's it's very weird yeah. overall. It, it's definitely all yeah. It's definitely all over the place, and <laughs> I think for a long time in my early stages of fandom, whenever I got this album, I forget where I got it in my greater accumulation of Peter Gabriel albums. But but for me, for a long time, it was oh, that's the one with Salisbury Hill on it because even I must have known that song before getting this album whether it was from plays live or just on the radio and things like that but that's really the only song from really his first two albums that has had a life on radio post this this time frame and so a lot of the other tracks are are really unknown to the greater listening public of which i was at the time when i when i got this uh since then you know i certainly liked salisbury hill as a song which we'll talk about later but i liked the quirky weirdness of this and and the diversity of style on here is a, is a pl- is a feature not a bud for me that's you know it's you know some of these people say oh it's all over the map people talk about that with please don't touch a hatchet's album also and i'm like that's what's great about it it's like i want an album to have a bunch of different styles on it because if you don't like the present song you're gonna get something totally different for the next one so and does everything work on this album eh, you know to an extent, yes, but also it, it gets to personal preference at some point. So, so yeah, so overall, it's like I liked this album, but it is also not my favorite Peter Gabriel album either. I'm, I'm with you there. It's funny, over time, getting to find the story behind the music, you know, reading mm-hmm. every interview you can, getting all those, you know, BBC late night interviews on uh, cassette or even vinyl in some cases, you get some of the stories. And one of the stories that I found out is that that was Peter Gabriel's intention at the beginning. He was very conscious of, I do not want this to sound like Genesis. Right. Now, that's a little bit hard because Genesis had enough variety from pastoral folk rock that he was involved in to, you know, back in New York City driving Hmm. rock and everything in between. Right. And he says, well, I don't want any of this to sound like Genesis. Yeah. Like, Wow, um, that that becomes interesting in part because of the experience with the Lamb. That yeah. musically, it could be different than Genesis because he hadn't really done much with that, yeah. and so he hadn't been writing music as such with Genesis for for a couple of years. But sure enough, the directions he goes in are directions that would be unimaginable for Genesis at the time. Even though later on, you saw Genesis as as they continued to do through their careers 
if not directly influence each other, yeah. uh, ride some of the same currents just at slightly different times. Yeah. They all have that history that they that they draw upon in different ways. And I just remember, I think in one of those interviews, you know, or even later on, Gabriel said that one of his intentional choices was no 12 string on his albums at all, because that was so associated with Genesis. And which is sometimes I think that's, I would have been curious to know if he had decided well, I can use 12 string, but I'll do something different with it versus, oh, I'll do a 12 string just the way Genesis did. You know, it's sometimes, but sometimes you have to make those. He's Gabriel's big on making drastic choices. There will be no symbols on this album. There will be no, you know, I will cut off all my hair and, you know, do all these different things. You know, he's, he is an all or nothing kind of guy, it seems like. And so maybe saying no 12 strings was one of those rules that he came up with. So it's fascinating to me that here's Peter Gabriel, who is walking out of the machinery, who's feeling like the rock industry is just too much of a burden to carry, needs to spend time with his family. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, trying to, all of this is happening and he's 25 and 26 years old. Yes. And he's recording this album as he's, I believe, 26 and it was released before he reached 27. That's a lot of heavy shit for yes. a 25, 26 year old <laughs> yeah. to be processing and dealing with as almost a, a midlife crisis in yep. some ways, the first of several in his life. Indeed. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think I could deal with half of that at 30, which I am right now. Oh, yes. I got to give him credit. Right. More power to him. So, So with this, we will now segue into the first track on this album, Moribund the Burgermeister. Obviously, to uh, to any album, let alone a Peter Gabriel album, but it's it kind of grabs you right away and shows you that this isn't going to be your typical rock album that you're putting on in 1977. <laughs> I mean, you probably got that from the title, "More Bun the Burgermeister," that this isn't your usual love song, rocking song. But it's I've always had a really soft spot for the song. I know it's very popular. It's like a a, a deep cut from Gabriel fans. Yes. But, is there something about it that it just gets my lady balls? <laughs> As I say, it is just there's something about it, just the boom, that just is that heart pumping, thumping mm-hmm. that grabs you and just uh, it's it's a great opener. I, I just love this song. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think that before I listened to this album, 
I've for the podcast to really think about it. It was what I considered my favorite. It, it, it's it was my favorite track on the album. You have to wait until the end to see if it's still my favorite track on the album. But it is one of those ones that I would love to hear him revisit this live. I know he did it a couple times on his 2007 tour that he did in in the UK and Europe. I think uh, I would have loved to have seen him perform this kind of in later day Gabriel era. It's it actually not sonically, but maybe kind of in the story of it, it reminds me a bit of Harold the Barrel with a bunch of different characters in it. And there is a story being told here, but also the when I first had this on CD, it didn't the version I had didn't have the lyrics in it. So I I didn't really pay much attention to the lyrics on this album in general. But the reissue I have from early 2002 from uh, Geffen actually does include the lyrics and I was going through them when I was re-listening to this and I was like oh yeah there, this is very Harold the Barrel-ish in that there's different characters there's something going on but it's it's also it's an unresolved story like there's no there's no big conclusion at the end of it and I almost wonder like what part two would have been of this song. It's funny that you related to a Genesis song because I did as well. Okay. I said it, it was kind of just the whole overall feeling of it was reminiscent of the knife, but from the opposite point of view. Oh, okay. I can Whereas see that. Whereas that was more about the people putting up a rebellion. This was about the Burgermeister who was watching a rebellion happen and like his, oh my God, what's happening? What's happening? All these people are looking for a savior and we got to push this rebellion down. So that's, that's my Genesis connection to it. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I had a couple of throwback moments even as you're listening to it and thinking primarily this is not genesis anymore we're in we're in a different realm you still do get those moments so for me when you get the the doubled vocals or the gang vocals Mm. almost at times that there was a little like harold the barrel with the, the group all singing in with the different characters it felt a little like epping forest or or harold the barrel or some others but With the story, it's one of those where you realize there really was a lyrical distinction in Genesis that you didn't really realize, certainly at the time, but even as a listener, until you heard the stories from the band. Right. Mike and Tony, you know, Tony would wax philosophic um, and and come up with these phrases that were almost unspeakable (laughs) in their complexity. (laughs) But the themes would often be sci-fi aliens fantasy stuff right. whereas but, Peter but there but there'd be the tony lessons in there too about how to live a good life <laughs> yeah, right and then peter would be a little bit more i don't know humanistic is, is not the right word but a, a little more personal in some ways even if the stories were weird it was more about what's going on in here the head and what's yeah. going on in here the heart and this one kind of kind of brings that out you can you can get the sense that oh this is what peter contributed to the earlier albums this kind of stuff and yet there's some things here that are totally unique to me like the you know i will find <laughs> right later even genesis echoes that a little bit with some of phil's uh vocals on future albums sure but you don't really hear it in that sense in earlier genesis things uh so i think peter was was going a little bit different here. The one thing I don't know is how much influence uh, he got on two fronts. Mm -hmm. One front is, and these apply to the whole album, but you have to think of them for this opening track. Mm -hmm. One is when he decided that he was going to go back into the business 
which he made a big show about, oh, I'm the, the business. It's too corrupting. I'm going to walk away. No, you're not. Of course, you're, you have too many right. ideas to, to not come back. But the first thing he did is he did demos with Ant, yes. Phil, and Mike, and he, <laughs> right. he got them all together because he did not know how to talk to session musicians. He had, right. he had never been in the experience of having an idea in his head and having to essentially direct someone how to play it. He just had that chemistry with the band. So yeah. he got together with them and did a few demo tracks and they, in a sense, coached him on how to talk to the musicians that would ultimately play on the album. Right. And I wonder what feedback loop there was. He consciously was doing this as his own and he didn't want to be part of a committee anymore. But you can't tell Mike about the kind of bass sound you want or Phil about the kind of percussion and not have them put a little bit of sauce in it. Right. So I, that's the first one is I wonder how much influence on this track and others the those members had in that brief period when he worked with them and i don't think um, those demos have ever surfaced in no. in trading circles or anything like that like there I'm are sure some they even were you know were kept um, yeah i've never knows? heard that they were i've just heard them reference that they they did it yeah the other side is and i think this one is a little more uh, you can put your finger on this one more mm -hmm. is the influence of bob ezrin the producer hmm. yes um i mean coming off of the Kiss Destroyer album, which <laughs> was that band's, you know, so much more orchestral and epic than anything they'd done before with God of Thunder and Great Expectations and even the long version of Detroit Rock City. And then, of course, what he would end up doing on the wall. You, you, you kind of hear some Bob Ezrin in here. You hear a little bit of that majesty that the he was big sound. To on yeah, record. right. And I think Moribund brings it out for the first time, but not the last time on this album. Oh, yes. Yeah. It I, feels like he was very, for a first solo album, he was very, he, he picked the right people, or if the people were picked for him, just with Bob Ezrin, Robert Fripp, I mean, Tony Levin, you're, you're starting your first solo album with like huge talent. I mean, yes. he, he, you don't really get that much. You know, it doesn't happen often when uh, just a, a random solo artist starts starts off in his career. So I think people had seen him, his work with Genesis. They knew what his potential was. And, and people like Robert Fripp and Bob Ezrin, they just said, you know, this is someone I want to work with and whose ideas I can help mold. And uh, yeah, it's, it really shows on this album. Yeah. And I was mentioning before about the, the Harold the Barrel-ish to me aspect of these lyrics but not having had the lyrics in front of me until you know until some of the reissues I was like I realized like even even having the lyrics now about halfway through this song I really don't care about I don't want to say I don't care about the story but it is so this song to me is so much about the feel and the sound of it I don't he could be singing about you know doing dishes for all I care and just the the weird spookiness and and humor that seems to be in this song is is what works for me and it's great i i find this song magical in a lot of ways because as his first track on his first solo album this isn't something that i could see being on trick of the tail for example but I could see, you know, kind of these first solo albums, you know, from Steve, from from Peter. You kind of think like, well, what songs here could have been Genesis songs? And this could have been a Genesis song in an alternate universe. I don't know what they would have done to it, but it's it has that weird feel to it that I'm like, oh, yeah, the band could have done something with this song. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you on the 
the the music really standing out it's it's such a mood it's such an atmosphere to the point that beginning listening to the beginning of it it's it still kind of sounds a little like indigestion it still has this (laughs) thickening feeling to it which is perfect for the song there were some songs on this album that i had trouble understanding the lyrics as a kid um i just I couldn't figure out what he was saying. Turns out a couple of things were in German, and I didn't yes. know that at the time. Ah, okay. That later. Right. Um, sometimes he was just pronouncing things in a way that a, a British singer might mm-hmm. do, and a, particularly a Peter Gabriel <laughs> might do. And it, I didn't figure that out. So I had a few words wrong here and there on almost every song. This song, however, I thought he was exceptionally clear. I understood the message. I understood the story. And I really liked it. It's hmm. It's kind of... It's it's unique. I mean, who else is going to sing about some in in probably what middle ages <laughs> mayor of a town having some kind of horrible plague and just lamenting about the fact that he doesn't know what's going on and what's causing it? I mean, really, you you got to be pretty messed up to come up with a song idea like that, <laughs> but then make the lyrics actually work with the atmosphere of the song. the The part that struck me, though, listening to it again. I've heard a few tracks from this album in the last year or so, just coming up on show and like that. I had not heard this song um, in at least a year. And I know that because hearing the lyrics actually got to me a little bit when Hmm. I hear him singing about, you know, what can I do to stop this plague spread by sight alone, just Hmm. a glimpse, then a quiver, then they shiver to the bone. And I got chills um, because I thought it's a a different virus, right? (laughs) But in, right. in, in what we've seen in the last year, I, I heard this song differently emotionally than I've ever heard it before. And that's the thing about music is that it can hit you different ways, different times of your life for a variety of of reasons. So I think that's that's interesting that you share that. Very fun. When I uh, got into this album, I was in high school and I took German in high school for a number <laughs> of years. So when I started listening to this album, I was like, Burgermeister, Liebeschon, this is up my alley. I, was, <laughs> I, I, felt, I felt so smart that I was like understanding all these words. So I, on the flip side, it wasn't until I really read the lyrics as I listened to the song that I was aware that he actually says more Bund the Burgermeister in the song. Right. And for some reason that had slipped past me. So I'm like, okay. Yeah. Of course, I actually tried to figure out, you know, what's, what's the meaning there? Right. Mm. Um, moribund is not a noun, and yet he calls himself moribund almost as like a proper noun. My right, name right. is moribund, the burgermeister. I'm like, no, but moribund is an adjective, and you're describing kind of that feeling, but it's not the right word. Yeah. Peter, you got you got the wrong word if you're trying to do it that way. And then I realized I was thinking way too much about this. <laughs> I don't exactly. know how he came up with that, but it's a little bizarre given that it, it actually isn't the right word for what he's describing. It's just a cool sounding word yeah. when put together with Burgermeister. It actually does work for that purpose. It trips it's off not the to tongue. think of the song when you watch that Christmas special every year with Burgermeister Meisterburger. That's right. The uh, the one last thing I wanted to say about this, and it's an, it's an admission which... I can't help but not say because <laughs> if you've seen the Rock Palace 78 special. Yes. Yeah. Where he does uh, basically it was the tour from the second album. He does about half the songs from the first mm-hmm. album. He does the other half from uh, his second album. But when he opens the uh, Moribund the Burgermeister and he's coming on stage with those floodlights mm. and he's got his hands and he's doing that little hip motion to the, like the music. 
I'll admit that is damn sexy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. Every time I'm like, it's, it's, I feel a little funny inside. Like when you climb the rope in gym class, <laughs> <laughs> I mean that, I mean, but that whole thing, that, that's his thing. It's, it was that latent kind of sexuality yeah. where like he might not have had expressed that when he was in high school or maybe, you know, it wasn't their thing, but he was able to really use the music to kind of express those feelings. And, you know, there's a later scene in that video where the saxophonist and a keyboardist, he's doing this really hip thrusting something and Peter's right behind him. I'm like, all right, this is too hot to handle. Right now. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. You, so, so my plug is this, if you haven't seen that, video it's on youtube now i uh, think that it, i think that it might even be on gabriel's official website i thought that maybe a year or so ago they put it out there so i think it might be there or on his youtube account i'd love to see an official release of it both video <laughs> and audio to have because there's not a lot of gabriel early live stuff out there officially so it's good to see some of these earlier versions of the of his development as an artist I, I will say in terms of the the live version which i've heard a, a couple of different takes on it from his early concerts but i think the most widely known one is the recording that was done in the roxbury in la in 77 okay. and it's not bad <laughs> um, but it doesn't have the same emotional impact as as on the album um, sure. i think and that's so opposite of many of peter gabriel's songs right when he performs them live it's it can become almost a mystical experience on so many tracks and yet this one it just the way that it has to be done live um it, it sounds almost a little poppier it, it, hmm. it, it loses some of that moribund atmosphere that yeah. you get it's uh, such a it's such a studio song that it's it's yeah. it has its you know own atmosphere to it yeah. well well speaking of poppiness we're now going into perhaps the most straightforward song on the album Salisbury Hill One of the most darkest, most disturbing ideas he's had to one of his most catchy pastoral pop songs. Uh, just the mood change here. I, I think physically I got whiplash um, re-listening to this and, and how much it changes. But there's been one thing about this that has been bothering me 
for now probably 35 years. So I'm going to ask ask you guys this. Th- this is the place for airing of grievances, so <laughs> oh we, we appreciate uh, that. After the second verse, it is very clear that Peter says something, or maybe it's the third, you know, hey, back home. Just a little throwaway yep. line to fill the space. But after the first verse, he does something similar. But it's not, hey, back home. He says something that is indistinguishable. I mean, you can't, I can't figure out the actual words he says. Mm. I have seen commentary that it's something like, hey, don't quit, or hey, don't worry. But phonetically, it's, hey, thunk a wheel. It sounds like thunk a wheel. <laughs> and part of me says, well, Peter has a little bit of a history of kind of this scat phonetic singing. I remember, hmm. you know, his early version of Indigo, which they would just call a song without words. There were some times in that song when he performed it in 77 where he didn't have the lyrics fleshed out and he just did some syllables that sounded okay together. Right. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's what this is. It sounds like he's distinctly trying to say something, and I have not been f- able to figure it out in about <laughs> 10,000 freaking listens to this song. So if you can figure out what he says in those couple of syllables right hmm. at the end of the first verse, okay. I will be very grateful. Yeah. Uh, uh, my take on it was that it is specifically, uh, maybe not intentionally, just the way he was singing it, but it's his uh, stereotypical Gabriel ease where he's like, like an under pressure when uh, Freddie Mercury goes, da, 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 da. it's, it's kind of like that little, just, I'm just singing hey, here. You know, it, it, it feels with like some vocals should come in here. So I, I don't think it means anything. I think it's just him. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's his kind of might have a yeah. No, I, I agree. It's it, because it is like it. It is after that line, like "Come to take me home" or "Going home." Hey, back home. Like it's. I I'd have to kind of listen to it again to really see if he's doing anything specific with that. But it does feel like, as fans, we want to read meaning into anything, and I think for him, it's it's more like. Yeah, I felt like I sang the line and I just had a little bit of extra oomph to put at the end of it. And that's and that's what that is for him. So and it really struck me because it's yeah. such a well-constructed song. Yeah. yeah. Looking at it from a songwriting point of view, he's he's very crisp with his, his words and his mm-hmm. use of the words and the rhyme. There's no messing around. There's no extraneous material here. And so for there to be something in here that doesn't add value yeah. is very strange given the, the crafting of the rest of the song. And it just bothers me because, <laughs> hey, dunk a wheel, or, <laughs> hey, don't queel. No, none of those actually add meaning here. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty I'm say, pretty sure hey, he's not saying, quit. I'm pretty sure he's saying not dunk a wheel in there. I think oh, that that's, sure yes. <laughs> if anybody does think that, I'll German say. phrase, dunk a wheel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're working in that stuff. Yeah. You know, don't quit you know it's i mean i think that you know perhaps at different times in your life you hear different things in the gabriel ease that he drops in there you know Um, and i'll I'll say that this is my obsession with this song is having scoured every source and every interview and never having an answer to it is you know kind of the white whale you know i I want to know what actually he intended to say (laughs) and he might not even remember at this point what he intended to say about it but that shouldn't take away from the song itself of course gotta say from the 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 joy here even the you know what i remember from an interview of the drummer one hand just having a shaker the whole song you know not Mm -hmm. actually playing with a second stick and hitting a phone book with the with the stick instead of a a full drum most of the time um it's just such a well 
packaged song that uh, as much as I've heard it and as many times as it's been appropriated in film and others, it still puts a smile on my face. Yeah, I, it's, it is. I wrote, you know, happy feel to it because it, it does feel kind of like bottled happiness. It's almost one of those it's one of those tracks that gets used in film previews all the time because it's like, ah, you know, we're we're turning the corner and we're coming around the bend and everything's great at this point. The lyrics are generally happy-ish, but again, still have a little bit of that. Like, it's it's a song about transitions to me, and it's about, you know, changing from one thing to the other and making a choice to make your life better somehow. And, you know, people can say, oh, the first verse is about this, the second verse is about Genesis, the third verse is about whatever. Uh, and it's like, yeah, but it's also whatever you w- need it to be in your life at the time. And, and I also think that this album specifically, there's a lot of different... Some of the songs have a lot of reverb on the vocals or a lot of echo and things like that, and it makes it sound very distant, whereas some of the tracks, and this is one of them, where the vocals are crystal clear. You know exactly what he's singing. It's not a moribund thing where there's, you know, weird echo stuff or even, like, parts of humdrum. It's drowned in echo and reverb with these things. These lyrics are up front, which for a singer's album, you'd almost think maybe all of them should be up front, but... You know, it's it's something where the lyrics are the focus of this song. Now, I, I it took me years until I realized that most of it, if not all of it, was uh, relating his departure from Genesis. Right. Once I saw that, everything it was almost like the 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 radio station tuned in crystal yes. clear. You can't unsee it oh, after that. It's obvious that that line, that line, of course, yeah. that's what he's talking about. But it is like a, a freeing. It's his probably most straightforward lyrics. I think David was saying like there's nothing odd about it. Like there's other songs on here that talk about washing machines and stethoscopes and, <laughs> and like yes. just using any other kind of thing. This is more yeah. There's some metaphors and things like that, but it's it's you understand what he's saying, what he's talking about, and it is funny that this has been used in so many movies during montages when the <laughs> central character is going through metamorphosis and yes. change for the good and. <laughs> So I think it does have that upbeat, cheery feeling where I realize uh, now I sound like uh, Kylo Ren. I, I know what I have to do, but I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> that, that kind of thing. Yes, be careful. Don't don't kill your father. This is one of those things that that you make a, make a, make the light the right life choice at this point. A couple of uh, reflections on the music here that you know Robert Fripp was was brought in yep. uh, quite consciously by Peter to to add to it. And of course, he is a full service guitar player. He could play this line, but it doesn't sound very frippish. And mm. sure enough, you know, finding out that it wasn't him, that it was right. Steve Hunter, who was, yeah. who was more of an electric guy and, you know, did things like uh, Aerosmith's Train Kept a Row and that, that beginning guitar oh, part okay. that's so iconic. Um, but he was, he was brought in to do this and plays it ably. It's not exceptionally difficult, but it, but it's got that texture to it that's that's really nice. The other thing that adds to this song musically is something that you know we don't hear much from Peter on future albums, and we used to hear a lot in Genesis albums, mm-hmm. which is his damn flute. Ah, right, right. Sometimes it. Sometimes I will say, as much as I love the early Genesis tracks, a few times it just doesn't seem necessary. Mm-hmm. It just it emotionally makes the song when you, when you have just those four notes uh, playing with the flute, 
it, it actually fills out the song in a way that's really brilliant. Um, I think maybe there's flute later on humdrum or something, but mm. it, it really stands out on this track um, in the last way that I can think of in a, in a major Peter Gabriel song, having that flute be an important uh, integral part of the song. Um, so musically, that's, that's what hits me. Uh, lyrically, this has been an important song for me in my life. I mean, mm-hmm. that sounds dramatic, but it really is because I've, I've walked away from a couple of careers. Um, right. I decided, you know, not to use my PhD in political science to go into academia and mm-hmm. people thought I was a nut, right? Mm-hmm. Because right. it was a, it was a nice track ahead of me and I just decided to do something different. And then when I left government service, when I was on a, a very good track and I just literally just said, bye, I'm just walking away. Yeah. And those lyrics, you know, I was feeling part of the scenery. I walked right out of the machinery. Uh, I don't need a replacement. And I'll tell them what the smile on my face meant. <laughs> Every time I've had one of those moments, I have consciously thought about those lyrics and how well they capture that feeling. Right. And the song doesn't feel almost 45 years old. Right. I mean, it says fresh back then, just from the music. And it's just, just it's not a typical song. You've got basically three verses. Yeah. And And that's it. Yeah, there's no real, there's no real chorus to this, you know, it's, you know, there, there is none of that. It is, it's, it's almost like an older style song that it's just, it is about the verse itself and the feel of it. And another Genesis kind of connection, the, the screams toward about the end. Ah, Yes. I was kind of like uh, counting out time towards the end. That's the one bit of this song that I'm not, that I think could have been changed like it's to me it doesn't it doesn't feel like it adds to the 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 meaning of the song for me but it's it's fine it doesn't bother me but it's just kind of it i don't want to say it subtracts because i don't think it subtracts from the song but it certainly doesn't add anything to it for me i'm with you it it, it stands out as different from the rest of the song and honestly that's kind of why it works for me because uh listen peter's a weird guy and this is a weird album and if you had the perfectly crafted pop song in there, I, I guess having that at the end with no explanation of why there's grunts and, and screams and wails, kind of a preview of modern love and some other yeah. things, in a way, it it almost works. It, it, it keeps it a Peter song instead of being some old English pop thing that he right. busted off and just put a little a bit of his own flavor into. So I, you're right. It's absolutely not necessary for the song, but as a package somehow it still works for me yeah i get that i actually listening to this for the for the podcast again it kind of popped into my head that i was like and i'm i'm not a huge u2 fan but i was like oh u2 to do a really good cover of this song (laughs) and i don't know why that popped into my head maybe it was just one of those things that i was like oh yeah gabriel did that album of covering other people's things who could cover this and i was like oh u2 would do a very good job with this in their kind of maybe not a bombastic u two way but in their more kind of restrained u two way whether whether they'll listen to my recommendation for that who knows but you know well, I know who couldn't do a good version of it Lou Reed <laughs> yeah that's what I was gonna say <laughs> I, I listened to it I probably heard it once around the time it came out and I, I just I saw I saw him do it live ooh lucky no not lucky <laughs> no not lucky at all this was at, at Radio City Music Hall when, when Peter was doing the Scratch My Bat shows um, 
And during the intermission, at the end of the intermission, Lou Reed came out and did his version of Salisbury Hill, which was not good. Again, I'm not a huge Lou Reed fan. Maybe if you love Lou Reed, you like the droning, monotone delivery of vocals, but it was not good to me. That's. I think we are all in agreement on that, that this song. It, it may not be a perfect song in, in the sense that you said, Mike, of, right. you know, would I change a single note or a single sound somewhere in the song, a perfect song, you say, I literally can't do that. There's nothing that would improve this by adding or to taking away. I'm not sure this qualifies, but it's right. so close that having Lou Reed <laughs> do a cover uh, seems somehow <laughs> sacrilegious to me. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. My, the only other thought I have on this track is, that this was a hit in the UK yeah. and in some parts of Europe. I think the Netherlands, maybe Belgium, okay. possibly Italy too. But it was it did not do extraordinarily well in the US. And this is even after the investment of the Lamb Tour when they put a lot of eggs into the basket in the US. And that always struck me as interesting because it's definitely more of an English feeling song mm-hmm. than, a, than a, an American song. And yet it has taken root in American pop culture in the intervening decades in a way like perhaps nothing other than in your eyes for Peter Gabriel, right. uh, more so than shock the monkey, which was a hit in the U S comparatively. Right. right. And that always as odd, but it does explain why he basically had the leash to do what he wanted to do on the next few albums, yeah. feeling his way out because he actually delivered a hit to the record company and yeah. the, the British fans wanted to hear it. Yep. Cool. Well, With that, we will segue from the pastoral strains of Salisbury Hill into the rock of modern love. Description is more cowbell. <laughs> you gotta love it. It's a heavy rocker. It's got the cowbell. It's again your third third song on the album, and it is not like the first two. Yeah. So with each track, you're getting to some kind of different exploration that Peter's doing, and it kind of like you haven't experienced a rocking track like this probably since back in New York City or mm-hmm. or some of the other heavier ones from Lamb Life Down on Broadway. So I think, I don't know if he's, was that comfortable in this position of doing a song like this, but I mean, obviously he did it and wanted to get out of him, but it's, uh, it's not a staple of his repertoire. It's something that is this heavy, this yeah. dent, dent with a guitar riff and, and, yeah. and heaviness, but 
for a short rock and track. I, I like it. Yeah. I It lasted in his live sets till about maybe 80 or 82 or so, and then kind of disappeared. I don't think it's made a reappearance since then. I actually thought that a song like More Than This from from Up was almost like a lat, like in sound, almost like a latter day modern love that was a bit more riffish at the start of it. Um, because Gabriel is not known for riffs, you know, he was not a, a, somebody that his songs really didn't have too many were, were riff based like this was. Um, Mike, am I right that this was, was this the second single from the album? I believe so, yes. And it had a, like it, it had a it great like video. It had a video <laughs> with him in whatever kind of foot. Football, weird, gearish stuff that he had going down a moving sidewalk somewhere, and it's it's a very it's, I think it's on the 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 video collection that he put out on DVD and everything. It's a yeah. weird video. It's it's definitely out there, but weird not in like a shot the monkey type of weird. It's just like this is these are this is what you decided to do with this track. So I like it. I I generally enjoy this song. It's just kind of it's uh, it's very riffish. I think the lyrics of this, you know, have some of the rhyming in it is very reminiscent of the Lamb to me, kind of the the rhyme couplets of stuff, and it shows up a bit elsewhere on the album also. This kind of lambish type of spice and rice, you know, not that he's using those words in this song, but those almost obvious rhymes that he chooses, but he uses them very well. I I give this a thumbs up. I, I really, really like this song, and and the more I listen to it, the more I like it. It does have the lyrics, some of some of Peter's famous coupling rhymes that yeah. are right on that border between eye rolling and genius. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure where they are. It depends on my day, but mm-hmm. you know, going from Prima Bella and Umbrella to <laughs> yes, Cognito and Red Hot Magneto. <laughs> uh, I think sometimes he was just at the end of the day, like what rhymes with Incognito? Oh, Magneto, that sounds good. Yeah, so some of those I think. <laughs> are a bit of a stretch, but overall it works, but I think it works because of the music. And I really, yes. really like, I'll put it this way. I really like the the solid bass line with the matching guitar up front. And that conveyed really well live. It makes it a great track, but it's funny. Um, it, it highlighted for me listening to it again, the fact that you've got Tony freaking Levin on this album. Mm. Um, one of the best bass players mm-hmm. uh, in, in rock music. While this is a great bass part, it is not a, an exceptionally difficult one. I think Mike would agree as the bass player yeah. here with that. I noted that I really like the bass in the chorus specifically, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun track. It's got yeah. that, that liveliness in the bass. Um, that even a lot of tracks on this album don't, but yet it doesn't take advantage of Tony Levin. I'm not hearing, I'm not hearing Tony do the things yeah. he did later with some of his creative, creative stuff here. But I still really like the yeah, track. Overall. It's it's not needed. This is this is a song that to me it's like probably three and a half minutes long. It sticks around for the perfect amount of time for what it is. It's like if it had been any longer, I would have been like, oh come on, do we did we need a fourth chorus of this at this point or whatever? And but it's for what it is. It does it very well, so so I, I give this the thumbs up on my front on my part. Um, I had just watched I just watched the video last night again, uh, <laughs> just because it's been a while and it's it's definitely odd. I do have to say that his dancing has been consistent over the years. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a very that is a, as as close to a compliment as I've heard about his dancing with that and I think he would agree that he is is very consistent in his white man non-dance style 
And the other thing I noted about this track, which I just wrote it down just because I was listening to it and I wrote the bridge is my favorite part where it goes, I don't know why they leave me in a lurch mm-hmm. to carry on the search. And as I was going through the rest of my uh, rest of the album writing notes, I noticed more than one time I wrote the bridge is awesome. Awesome bridge. <laughs> right. The bridge is great. So he's I think he's there's something about that different change up in the middle of the song that he's really good at because I, I wrote that at least three times on these on my notes. And this is the first song on the album that actually has a bridge to it also right. because there's really not one in Moribund the Burgermeister. There's certainly not one in Salisbury Hill. And it was something I noted also where at first I was like, is this an album of songs with no bridges? And then this showed up and I was like, oh, okay, there it is. So it works out nicely with that. Well, we're going to to segue into a, another right turn in styles <laughs> with the barbershop stylings of Excuse Me. How's my audition? <laughs> you're, you're hired. All right. After my vocal rendition of Excuse Me, I have to be the first one to talk about this. I love this. I just think, again, it's it's another weird left turn of this album. Never before or again will you hear Peter Gabriel do Barbershop Quartet in this. I know that Tony Levin later does this on a unreleased, at that point, King Crimson little bonus track that ends up being released in the 1980s. And I know that he played a hand in arranging this because of his love of the Barbershop Quartet. It's fun. It's it's a fun wordplay throughout the entire thing. And I think that, to me, there's the lyric that is the closest maybe to a chorus that's in here of Gabriel just singing, I want to be alone. It being a first solo album, I thought that language was kind of telling to me that it was just like, you know, Gabriel is making another statement about that this is who he is and this is him alone you know this is him being creative on his own obviously in collaboration with others but this is his statement and he wanted to do a he wanted to do a barbershop track so why not it strikes me listening to it that when peter said he consciously wanted to do something that wouldn't be Genesis, um, <laughs> checks the box. I mean, yes. if nothing else on the album, um, he could have gotten away with more Genesis stuff uh, yeah. if he had just done this. Um, I, I usually have not liked this. Hmm. I found it amusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found it occasionally um, quirky and charming, um, but usually slightly annoying. 
upon re-listen, it actually didn't bother me as much. And I think it's because I was actually listening to what comes after the initial acapella part. Sure. And there's some interesting stuff going on there, probably not not out of the realm of, of this kind of track, but I just don't listen to bands that do this very often. I think Tony Levin actually played the tuba. On yes. The, You're right. The yeah. neat sound to hear on the album that you won't hear too often. And Fripp is doing the banjo. Yeah. It's it's just, it, yeah, I, I like that part of the song better than the beginning. The beginning, it actually made me look up when the Muppet Show premiered in the United <laughs> States and if it sure. played in the United Kingdom because Peter does such remarkable things with his voice when he's doing various characters over yes. the decades. But he never has that strained Muppet-like thing that he does when he goes, you know, wearing out my job. <laughs> he, he strains it in a way that I've never heard before or since, but it, damn it, it sounds like Kermit T. Frog. Right. And, and sure enough, The Muppet Show was out and the UK did have it in some form. I don't know if that was an influence, but it, it sounds eerily similar to me. Yeah. And I wonder if, I mean, again, with these type of vocal arrangements, I don't even know if that's Peter for sure doing that, or if that's one of the other members of the barbershop there. But, but yeah, it's an interesting vocal in all fronts. And I do think I totally get that the intro can turn a lot of people off. If you're like, what is this? This is not what I want listen to Peter Gabriel for. And so I I can see that that's something that can be kind of a deal breaker for people, especially after, you know, the rocker of Modern Love, the charm of Salisbury Hill, the weirdness of Moribund. It's like you're getting whiplash with listening to this album. I think I'm more on Mike's page where I just I love this track and I think I've always loved it from the opening acapella uh and i think it's it could be peter but between the acapella and when the song starts i always thought that was lawrence welk a oh. one and a two and because he used to start his songs like that on the lawrence welk show we used to watch that with my grandmother but i don't know sure if you did had, tom <laughs> you watched it on your own that's fine i don't know if they had the lawrence welk show in uh in the UK, but this was, I always think it's Lawrence Welk doing it. And that makes me happy because my <laughs> right. grandmother used to love Lawrence Welk. It's just, just a quirky, fun track. I, it feels like Randy Newman could sing this song. It's like one of those kind of quirky Randy Newman songs. Like as I'm listening to him, I'm like, I could hear him singing this. I did watch like a kind of a bootleg live version of this on YouTube mm -hmm. last night from, uh, I think it was the Passaic Theater. Seventy-seven. Okay. Tony's walking around playing the tuba, <laughs> uh, but I, I think this it didn't really work for me live because it's such a produced number that I right. think the studio works. Whereas on the live version, Peter's kind of playing like a drunk, kind of sloppy. He's kind of like sliding around the piano. He's kind of like staggering across the stage, and I don't know. It just didn't seem to me like a, a really a number that really worked live, but the, but the studio version, I, the quirks, the whistles towards the end when they have the do -do 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 -do, like all those guitar flashes yeah, or whatever right. it is, I, I like it, and it is kind of a nice break from Modern Love to Humdrum. Yeah, yeah. I to me it has. Out. Yeah. yeah, it really does, and I wonder. This is one that is credited as co-written with Martin Hall, right. who Peter apparently had dabbled with a, a little bit of songwriting before coming into 
to finish this and record it, but I don't see any other evidence of things that he worked on. And I'm wondering, huh, was he actually trying to do this kind of thing? And this is the one that made the cut, and and there are others out there like it, because I don't think anything else on the album is co-written. Now, there are some other demos floating around that were kind of like with Martin Hall, but none of them, it wasn't like all barbershop stuff or anything. they, They weren't honestly that... I mean, I've listened to them once when I got them from a friend type of thing. They weren't super memorable. And honestly, I can't even remember if Excuse Me was one of the demos on there right now. But yeah, there were a couple other things, but none of them. This is the only one that's actually been released on anything. Uh, It has that very kind of old style music hall feel to it. And it's just... I like when artists kind of go back into the past and do their version of things, like Sentimental Institution on Hackett's, uh, I think that's on Defector album, or is that Spectral Mornings? I forget which one that's on. But it has that kind of older style feel to it. Uh, again, that music hall, which I think especially in England was still kind of alive and well in different pantomime productions that were, you know, still popular to this day and so it's it's something that is is very english to me and i i enjoy that about it kind of like uh queen did with seaside rendezvous and yeah a couple of songs like that just kind of harkening back to probably what their parents listened to yeah old style old style good good time music so that was this track i also think was this the end of the first side of the album or was it after the next track i actually don't know I just thought it was fun because it ends, the song ends with the end. And if that was the actual end of the side, it's a little clever for me. I so. think it depended. I, 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 the cassette version might have been different. Yeah. Uh, there was some alternate running orders. Hmm. Uh, I think for me, at least on cassette, I think Humdrum finished out the first okay. side. But again, that's a cassette going back 40, yeah. 30 something years. Exactly. In the 80s at some point with that. <laughs> yeah. So cool. Well, speaking of Humdrum, we're now going to take a small trip into the humdrum. I saw the man at JFK He took your ticket yesterday In the humdrum In the humdrum I write tandem With the random Things don't run the way I planned them In the humdrum in the humdrum Hey Valentina You want me to beg You got me cooking I'm a hard-boiled egg In the humdrum In the humdrum Empty my mind I find it hard to cope Listen to my heart Don't need no stethoscope has grown on me over the years. I think I liked it when I first heard it, but 
I think probably every time I listen to it, and, and this is going back to being a, a teenager, um, is every time I listen to it, I appreciated it more. And now it actually sounds even better because back when you're playing it on your cassette, on your little boombox hmm. in your bedroom, you, you hear it. But when you have high quality headphones and mm -hmm. you hear it, mm. the beginning, and I don't know if it's the remix or if it was originally this way, but it's almost dizzying with the left-right mix mm. on that simple synth. And it it gives you such a feeling. And then the song has such different movements, even in a short song, it feels much longer than it is. It's yeah. kind of like uh, the trees by Rush in that regard, where you think that this song must be an eight or 10 minute song. And then you listen, you look at the track and you can't believe it was only <laughs> yeah. a, a few minutes. Um, but I, I really, really like this song. I think it's probably the most underrated on the album. Many people forget it's even here. And yet it's got It's got so much going on under the surface. Yeah, I actually, my first note was perhaps underrated. You know, that's, I think it is one of those tracks that I associate this more with Plays Live yeah. than with this album. And just because that was, I certainly did have Plays Live before this album. And I remember, you know, in my teen years, driving somewhere with my dad, I think we were going skiing in North Jersey and this song was on. And he was, he was an English teacher and he thought the lyrics were crazy. Like, you know, the hard boiled egg thing and, you know, don't need no stethoscope. He's like, how is this guy singing this stuff? And I'm like, yeah, it's a weird song. I was like, I didn't really make any apologies for it because I don't even think it was one of my favorite songs anyway. But it was also, you know, it was, it was not until later in my life that I was like, oh, out of woman comes the man, spends the rest of his life getting back where he can, when, when he can. I was like, oh, he's talking about sex. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, it's brilliant there. I mean, to me, that's that still stands out as one of my favorite Peter Gabriel lyrics of all time right. because there's a double meaning there, and I can't figure out if if he was going for one primarily over the other. But out of woman come the man, spend the rest of his life. Yes, I will. I will dog. always vote for the Peter Gabriel horn dog interpretation. He's singing about so. fruitcakes <laughs> yes. and honeybees. Oh yes, and, you know his shooby doo and all this. Yeah. But there's this meaning of. Out of woman come a man, spend the rest of his life getting back when he can, like taking revenge, like being oppressive oh, to women as interesting. a result. And I've never me, thought of it that way, actually. It, so. And both are echoed in his later writings. Huh. He, he talks about the that relationship and the man, the woman, the blood of Eden and mm. um, come talk to me. A lot of these themes come back. And. And I think it's one of the most beautiful double meanings that he's ever written. Interesting. I've never thought of it that way. So that's interesting just thinking about it in that interpretation. Getting back is uh, just such a great yeah. phrase to, to equally capture two things that he explores later on uh, hmm. in his in his catalog. Yeah. I mean, I, with with Mike's dad, I was kind of on board with that scrambled egg and or hard-boiled egg and yeah. stethoscope. Sometimes um, I like the wordplay. I like the rhyming. Uh, it takes me out a little bit when he's becoming so I don't know I don't want to say commonplace but like mm. using real life equipment but I get pulled back into it with as we're talking about the out of woman come the man yeah. starting with that whole section to the end is one of his best moments in all of his career and it's I majestic it. it's, I said Tony Banks would be proud of this section <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I agree it's very Banksian in that way and it just has that epic kind of feel to it that the big production of, of Bob Ezrin really works in that moment. So I agree. I, I Tom, I am in 100% agreement with you there. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is even more so than Morbun the Burgermeister, this is the most Genesis-y track 
on this album. This would have fit in perfectly into maybe not Trit, but certainly Wind and Wuthering. This this song would have been, you know, right in line with that. There's it's funny, there's there's some of the people do these mashups of different songs of from different artists, and I always have this mashup in my head of Out of Woman Comes the Man, spends the rest of his life when he getting back when he can, ends up like a dog being beat too much, spends half his life getting covered up, born in the USA or born in the humdrum or something like that like it's it's just the music and feel to it in two very different songs i'm like oh a mashup of those two things would work in a very weird way so so if you're in there and if you're out there listening to this and you enjoy doing mashups do a humdrum born in the usa mashup and i think that could work i'm certainly not going to do it so i'm giving that idea away for free we'll see if we'll, we'll see if the boss picks up on it exactly so yeah i think this is i mean it's funny some sometimes these songs that hit us the most or hit us in certain ways are the ones that I'm almost like, well, I have nothing more to say about this one because it's just great the way it is. Very similar feeling is uh, it's this is almost the perfect song, even though it's quirky. It's a little weird. The first part is with the forced rhymes is a little different than that last part, as Tom said, which is virtual lyrical perfection. It's just a really charming track that uh, gets better with age. Yeah. Agreed. Well, on that note, we'll now we'll now segue into the slow burn. This is the one track that for me I always forget is on this album. I like the song when I hear it and I'm like, oh yeah, this song, this is kind of fun, but it's 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 again more of a straight ahead rocker. It I almost want to say, even within this very eclectic album, it almost doesn't fit in because it's doesn't even have the little bit of weirdness that modern love has of being this kind of riff-based song which Gabriel tends not to do. It's not bad, I like it, but it almost feels like if I were to think about it, I'd be like, oh yeah, this is on his second album, not his first one. And there's a ringing silence after that. <laughs> Nobody quite knows. Maybe is that is that because this song just has that kind of weirdness to it, or well, I, I think it's like I know it's on this album. I know there's a song called "Slow Burn," but if you said "Hum it" or uh, yeah. "Give me a few bars of it," I'd say, "Well, let me listen to it because I can't remember what it's like." And I, it's got, it's got that rocking feel like yeah. modern love. 
the Again, vocals are drowned in echo and reverb. Yeah, so it's, uh, it, it's got a great bridge in the middle, and I love that instrumental part to the end where it's like shooting down our skies. Mm-hmm. I hadn't heard the longer version of it until recently, but it looks like there was a they put the intro back onto it on a recent release. Oh, and it goes from about four and a half minutes to about five twenty. Oh, really? Uh, what recent you, release? Um, I have to go find that, but it, it basically it's the extended version where they have the intro back onto it, which is I think the intro they did live when they passed. Okay. All right. But they didn't include it on the album. The album kind of just starts with the fade in. Yeah. To the music where the actual longer intro, it's got more power to it. Uh, kind of like maybe they left it off either because of time huh. or because it was too much like down the Dolce Vita. It was very like bombastic in your face. Yeah. It's a weird track, and I like it. But uh, again, when it's over, I'm kind of like, "All right, I'm, I'm moving on <laughs> to whatever's next." Right. I can't, I can't disagree there. It's it's not my favorite track on the album by far, and yet it's probably up there with Salisbury Hill um, in terms of the the guitar playing. It's hmm. it's guitar playing that has some feeling to it. And that it's really striking because I think this was also a Steve Hunter song, not a not a yeah. Fripp song, and that, that's just so interesting to me because uh, of everything else Fripp did before and after. Yeah, it's hard to believe that for me that the two best tracks on the album, simply from an expressive guitar playing perspective, are, are both not him. Yeah, but you're right; it doesn't it doesn't have the same impact as a lot of other songs. It doesn't kind of wedge into your brain. And I think part of that is the vocals because mm. his vocals are, are good. There's nothing objectively wrong with them, but it's, it's a much more straightforward delivery. And to me, that's why modern love, which is its best counterpart here, modern love really sticks out much better because the vocals on modern love are extraordinary. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's straining with the pain and it was only later that I found out that that was real, that Bob Ezrin had one of the techs, a big guy, lift him up on a pillar, duct tape him on a pillar. <laughs> and Peter was literally dangling in the air, taped to a pillar to sing the, the lyrics of that modern love song. Hmm. And that really seemed to fit. And Slow Burn, I get the sense, not that he's going through the motions, that's unfair, but I don't get the same depth to his delivery. And I think that that keeps it from being a stronger track. Right. And jumping back to Modern Love, I also forgot to mention that in honor of Stacy, we also get a bit of his goat vocals in Modern Love also at the end of the, I forget if it's the verse or the chorus, but he's kind of love, and he does that kind of goaty, the knife type of thing in there, which I was like, oh, goat vocals, Stacy would like this. So, But yeah, I think that it's funny, we're talking more about modern love during slow burn right now but it's it's yeah Yeah. because it's again as as tom said too it's 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 not a bad song there's a lot of stuff i like about this song but for me the the drowning in reverb of the vocals removes any type of emotional attachment i could have to this like it makes it all kind of one step removed uh although i'm very curious to hear this extended version now so because again i'm a sucker for different versions of these songs so. <laughs> but yeah and it's also a song that i think lyrically when i was looking through the lyrics i'm like oh this is another lambie type of lyric that's very rhymy in places but i also couldn't really tell you right now even though i read the lyrics a day or two ago what this is about out 
it's I guess it's about a slow burn, but who knows? So, so overall, it's it's a solid middle of the pack. I'm curious to see where this ends up in the poll because um, <laughs> because there's a lot of good songs on this album. I could see this being a few people's favorite, but honestly, not many. So we'll, we're doing a little preview of Tom's poll at this point, but uh, we'll see how that actually works out. I would just say you're missing the great transition, which is speaking of Tom's poll, next track <laughs> is waiting for the big one. Now, I wasn't sure. Is this jazz blues or blues jazz? This track? <laughs> I, I would vote for blues jazz, but I would not argue either way. Do you like this track, Tom? It's, it, it's funny because if you were just looking at the back of this album or the CD and you looked at all the running times, yep. you say, well, this, might, this must be the epic. Yeah. It's, I think... I'm not sure, but I think it's the longest track. Yeah, it's album. like seven and some minutes long. Yeah, right. Do you think? Oh, that must be, but it's only that long because it has six different endings where you think <laughs> it's going to be over. <laughs> right. And yeah. the first one comes at about two and a half minutes, and then you've got most of the song left after that. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's fine. It's him doing you know another complete 180 with other songs on here, exploring different sounds that he never would have had a chance to do with Genesis. And I know he, that the guys always talk about their influences with Otis Redding and a lot of the, you know, American artists. And so maybe this is his kind of exploration into that kind of world. And and it's fine, but I'm also fine that he didn't repeat it. Yeah. yeah that's telling. And to me, this is the Saturday Night Live skit of Peter Gabriel's catalog <laughs> because for most of its existence, Saturday Night Live has never known when to end a skit. <laughs> right. And this song, the only thing about it that's interesting is the the false stops and the fact that there's always another one and another one and another one. And that is also its downfall because it doesn't really deliver much with them. Yeah. Um, it, it's almost just, a, um, I don't know, some kind of a quirk that doesn't 
pay off. Yeah. Um, the mixing also bothers me here. For much of the song, it's virtually impossible to hear his vocals. Mm -hmm. um, it's so Agreed. quiet. And that's part of the appeal to try to get this breathy blues thing. But but it doesn't work for that purpose. And, and I find that this is the most frustrating track on the album uh, because you're devoting a lot of time here to something that doesn't pay off when... Uh, as you'll hear in a moment, I think there's another track that had the potential to take that time and do much, much more with it. It's also one that I always have to listen to the beginning, even though it's very quiet. I always have to listen carefully because the count up at the beginning sure sounds like he's saying a uh, one, fuck, two, fuck. <laughs> and I've listened to it over and over again, and I can't say that he doesn't. There, it, it's, it, it's possible he's saying something else, but it is indistinguishable from him dropping the F-bomb just because he can. Right. A one, a two, a one, a two, a three, a... Interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that or listened closely to the counting. I acknowledged that it was there. I actually made well, a note about it for about some reason. you're not thinking about fruit cages and honeybees enough. I Where? guess not. But I, it's like, I liked the kind of little musical chorus of the da-dun, da-dun, and it's that kind of fake ending of it and I like the choral end of waiting for the beat one and everything like I enjoy that part of it but it's also there it's just the bits of it I enjoy like m mainly when I'm listening to this song I'm thinking when is this ending when are we getting yeah. to the end part of this so you kind of want to move on you've, you've had your fill of it by about three minutes four minutes into it and you still got yeah. almost half the song left to go and I always picture Peter singing this lying on top of a piano like Fabulous Baker <laughs> Boys you know stretched out and his, right. his, his torch song mm -hmm. uh, the one interesting thing about this is uh, they did have fun with it in concert on a, on the, at least in that Rock Blast video they take turns switching instruments yes. which I thought was very funny uh, Tony Levin goes and plays on the drums uh, Murata comes and plays bass then Peter goes back on the drums yeah uh, so they kind of just but yeah. I, this might have been a bathroom song when they yeah. got to that point <laughs> and I think that even like for some of the tours I don't know if it's on the video like Gabriel would actually start out singing the song in the balcony like he would basically crowd, yeah, yeah he would kind of be in the crowd somewhere running to the balcony and then work his way back to the stage while singing this which again is kind of presages him wanting to fall into the audience with lay your hands on me and that type of thing I think that if I were a punter back in the day and saw this live it might be compelling for a different reason than the musical content of it watching it because it could be fun seeing everybody switch instruments and everything when you're an audience member but listening to that or, or even listening to a live version of that you're more just like oh yeah that's a clever thing you know whatever so it's it's like the the musical medley and turn it on again the old cover songs that it's fun when you're at the show but do you want to listen to that over and over again when you're at home so well Gabriel was only in the, in the crowd because he was trying to stop people from leaving to go to the bathroom <laughs> right. and drinks at that Point. Right. I will say that uh, listening to it again, I think it's the weakest lyric on the album. Um, he tries in a few places to do something that's um, at least interesting and maybe clever, like, you know, once I was the credit to my credit card. But when you reflect on it, there's actually nothing there. It's it's not really <laughs> clever. There, there's no good meaning. 
and I and I feel like that's part of the kitsch of the song yeah. itself. But it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't quite click for me. I'll still listen to it. I, I won't turn it off if it comes up because it's still somewhat. But but it's it's not one of the tracks that keeps me coming back. Yeah. Agreed. I think that's fair enough with this track. It's it's certainly again. It's it's not a bad song. It's just not. It's not a song for me. Well, now we're gonna take a trip down the Dolce Vita. crazy (laughs) this one to me you know it it really in in the lyrical structure and in the characters and the 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 quotes it it, it's kind of a herald the barrel get him out by Mm. friday battle of Mm. epping forest all wrapped together with bob ezrin really stepping up and doing i mean the London's London Symphony Orchestra played on this yeah. first time, I think, for Genesis. I mean, I know Jonathan King brought in some string arrangements, oh. but having the orchestra do this yes. bombastic intro, and then having almost the you know, very disco guitar, very discoy. It's it's epic in its own way, and and I just find it absolutely fascinating. I didn't appreciate it as much early on, but mm-hmm. now when I listen to this song, it just captures me. And out of all the songs on this album, um, this one probably could have been improved by being more than than five minutes. Right. I think live, it probably had about 20% more. They did stretch it a bit. Yeah. But this to me, you know, really could be a, a more genesis e song while still being unique to this album and Peter Gabriel. Yeah, agreed. I, I love this track. I, I love it because when do you ever hear this type of guitar in a Peter Gabriel song again? You know, it's it's very it's it's very different. It's very unique. I think this is a Mozo song, which uh, for those of you who may not know and I, I'm certainly not an expert on Peter Gabriel's Mozo tracks but he, he had this idea of having songs throughout his albums linked by this character of Mozo telling some type of story, but he never really was 
coherent about what the story actually was or what the point of it was. I think Here Comes the Flood may be another Mozo song. I think the last one might actually be Red Rain that kind of cropped up on anything. So that had, you know, that that were set in the Mozoverse if we want to get into the kind of, you know, more modern parlance for these type of things. But I love this track. I think that the disco works in its own way. Uh, he does get a little doughty at the end of each verse of this track also. There's so much in this. There's nothing I don't like about this track, except it doesn't go on long enough to echo what David said. It's got that. It's funny. We're talking about uh, Salisbury Hills having not aged. This, you can definitely tell, was written in <laughs> yes. like 76, early 77, because it's kind of got that, like the middle of One for the Vine, where it's got that such disco feel to yes. it. Yes. Uh, with this. I could do another mashup of John Travolta dancing to this yes. song, but, but I won't. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's it seems like it's got a lot of potential. And if there were one song that I wish were closer to eight minutes, it would be this song and not waiting for the big one. <laughs> uh, again, I wrote, I love the bridge to the song. and I feel like it just gets going. And then it starts to kind of end a little bit. So I, it was one yeah. of these epic yeah. tracks that I wish had been a little bit more epic. There's yeah. a great enjoy moment. Uh, after the the waiting for the midnight bell to sound and oh then yeah there's that brief pause and then it goes into wood blocks with chimes and even some some creative guitar again there yeah. to me there's very little on this album i could picture being on trick or on wind and weathering i know you've you've, you've said mike you could yeah. picture a little bit of of some of them i i find it a bit of a stretch yeah however that musical passage there could have been on an extended 12-minute version of 11th Earl of Mar or inserted into one for the vine and would have fit really, really well in yeah. that. Um, so there is still some G- some DNA being shared here yeah, be- between the groups. And it stands out to me so much because it's it's a really interesting exploration of sound for that minute or so in there. Yeah, I actually noted the midnight, the midnight bell section also that I thought was a really, again, a creative use of lyrically kind of having the lyrics mimicked in the music and there being a real cohesiveness to that and this was a track that in the live shows when it was played it was one of the if it wasn't the last number of the set it was almost the last number of the set before encores and things like that because i could see this getting people on their feet and and getting up there being like yeah let's rock out to this one and and i like it you know i think when i first heard it I, I might not have connected with it, but it's something as I've gotten older, I just like the craziness of it, that it's like, what is this doing on a Peter Gabriel album? And it works. I think it's great. Love it. And I will say, I really like the transition into the, the next and final track of this album. Here comes the flood. Choose. 
On the tall cliffs, they were getting older. Sons and daughters, jaded underworld was riding high. Waves of steel, of metal, at the sky. And as the nails sunk in the cloud, the rain was warm. This is probably the second most known song on the album after Salisbury Hill. Uh, I know it's a huge fan favorite. Uh, he's played it a lot in concert, but as there are different versions of it, I wanted to pose the question to you guys. Do you prefer the studio version of the song or the Bette Midler version? Which do you prefer? <laughs> Does Bette Midler do a version of this or is that a t- classic Tom joke? YouTube it. And there was some some charity concert in 1984 called Art or Bust, and she does a version of this song with an interpretive dancer behind her, and it is something to see. (laughs) Tom, this may have to be linked on either the webpage or um, or we could put it out on Twitter and Facebook, too. I think I might rather watch the Star Wars holiday special from the least. Ooh, (laughs) classic. Before I see that. I, I gotta say, you know, I'm with you, Tom, that the different versions of this are, are striking right and yeah. there is this there is this thing that that peter has done on a couple of tracks but especially this one where he thinks playing it live just him and the piano like will capture the emotion so well and the lyrics are good enough they can carry it I, i'm 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 okay with it but i think it diminishes the song because the pairing when he comes in with the lord and there's that wall of sound that we all love from particular genesis moments that Peter Gabriel just doesn't do. He, he typically doesn't get that wall of sound moment. And the impact when he gets the Lord right when the music kicks in is the most powerful moment on this album. And I miss it live when he decides just to do a little tinkly tink on his piano at that moment. What I am what I gathered from kind of the, the chatter <laughs> when we put out the poll for the song is that a lot of people prefer that intro that he does on, with just a piano. I know he closed the Secret World live tour with it any open except for when i saw it except for when i was there i have never seen this song performed live and i am bitter about that so yes and it was either they liked that version or i know he did a version of it on fripp's exposure Exposure, where it's there's a little bit of a lift at certain points but for the most part it's that sameness and i have to and i think for that reason i didn't really gravitate towards this song a lot but what David said, I agree with. And when I listened to the studio version again, uh, spoiler alert, it was my favorite song on the album. <laughs> just, you have, this has everything. The segue from Down the Dolce Vita, mm. the quiet versions that 
take you between verses and between the end of the chorus and the next verse are just like chef's kiss. And you need that difference between the quiet part and the contrast of the wall of sound in order to, to, to get that feeling, that, that, that true in your gut feeling of the song, that if when it's played straight start to finish on piano, it does not give you that. And so uh, I think this is for me, the ultimate version of the song and it's just everything about it is just fantastic. Fair enough. Like imagining fly on the windshield. Uh-huh. Yeah, that moment on the windshield, and you think, are the lyrics still interesting? Yes. Is there still something evocative there? Of course. But it's it's like a, a shadow of it, right? You're in Plato's cave, and you're just seeing the shadow, and you don't actually see the reality. And to me, that's how this sounds. Every time I hear the, uh, albeit emotional rendering he does, um, but every time I hear it, I think I'm, I'm missing that boom. And and that, I I say that this <laughs> of the Peter Gaber recorded versions of this on the Fripp album and elsewhere, this is probably my least favorite version of it. Um, I I like it. I I like it, but it's the bombast to me is a little bit too much bombast, and it's not. It feels more like this is going to be really cutting it fine, but it feels more like Bob Ezrin bombast to me than Peter Gabriel bombast. And that's my main critique with the bomb. I'm a big fan of bombast. Don't get me wrong, but it's, it's like, I just talked about down the Dolce Vita and Vita and that's full of bombast. But this to me, just it's, it's a little bit almost too trekly for me. My favorite version of this is the one that's on 16 golden grates. The one, that is just him and the piano and maybe a little bit of light kind of single note keyboard at the end that for me captures the raw emotion of it without being bombastic i totally get what you're saying david and also you tom it's just i i think just for me a matter of taste it's like to me the the version that brings out the emotion for me is that quieter version but i totally get why the bombast works too so i suspect it's not just a matter of taste for you mike i suspect that you don't like that in this version on the album when he says your name, Lord, <laughs> right. the music actually overwhelms <laughs> it. It, it could so be ego gratification. That's, That's just right. what I'm saying. That's right. I really want the focus on the Lord, not on the music. So I, I can go. appreciate that. You know, it's um, funny reflecting on this. Um, I always assumed from the beginning when I heard it that this was about nuclear war and that's not about 1977 or 76 when he was writing it but it's when i experienced it which is the mid 80s and you know there'd been the day after everybody was talking about nuclear weapons in europe and i always assumed with the lyrics like nails sunk in the clouds you say goodbye to flesh and blood a thousand minds within a flash to me that's nuclear but over time, I've actually begun to question that, and I have not seen definitive from from Peter saying, "No, was it was it some more fantastical thing about, you know, climate change or something?" He was envisioning about a literal flood, yeah. which he has come back to several times in different mm-hmm. contexts. 
and is is my nuclear war interpretation you know more about me projecting onto it I, well that's the great thing about it I, I think for Peter it probably was in his head more a kind of lit, like a literal flood but it is so metaphorical that you could talk about anything being the flood well, I mean you go back to biblical references of flood and things like that and that's what I think is great about it and you know again it's it's to me this does have maybe the best lyrics on the album in general you know you know don't be afraid to cry at what you see the act is gone there's only you and me and if we break before the dawn we'll, they'll use up what we used to be you know it's it's just so it's so evocative to me this song that any version of it is good and when i say that this is my least favorite version it's still a really good version of it but i do have other other favorites and i haven't listened to the frip version recently enough to really kind of pitted against this version of it but that that 16 golden grades version i just really like and yes as i said before i am bitter that i have not seen this this song live so i think you're just carrying that bitterness over and it's could just, be it's kind of like it's kind of like afterglow is to you with I, Genesis. i was just gonna bring that up i i am <laughs> i accept that my personal experiences may be coloring my interpretation of this song in terms of the um interpretation i have a vague recollection and i can't place it but somewhere in my mind it's associated with armando gallo one of one of his books or interviews where peter said well it's it's really about the the breakthrough his, you know the idea that kind of fed into mozo and radio mm. of you know where there's going to be this telepathic breakthrough of humanity yeah. all understanding each other and that's what the floods that's what i was thinking about yeah and, I've never been fully satisfied with that just because I thought the whole Mozo story, which comes out with On the Air and the next album yeah. uh, more explicitly, but I thought that whole story idea was kind of lame about, <laughs> you know, radio signals bouncing off of the ionosphere does, does not lead to a new age telepathic moment. It's called science, dude. So <laughs> it, I never bought into that. Right. And I think that's why... If 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 if, I, if that vague recollection is right, that there was something about Peter thinking about that wonderful all of humanity telepathic moment happening from this song, I kind of parked that away in the dark recesses of my mind so I could enjoy the song more without it. Yeah, no, yeah, that sounds right to me. I think that that I remember what you're talking about being an in interview, whether it was the Gallo book or somewhere somewhere else. You know that that clicks with me too. That there was some conversation about this. Overall, though, great song. I really like it. If Gabriel ever tours again, I hope that I can see him play it live. That would make me happy. Well, if, if he played it this way, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, there you go. It, there, there's just so many little things that the studio version has that the live album mm. doesn't. Just even from like little percussion, yeah. the little piano touches, the echoey yeah. feel, the contrast between the verses and you have that quiet moment and then boom comes in with lord here comes the flood the guitar solo you don't yeah. get the guitar solo which for me has like a Probably. david gilmore vibe to it hmm. where it's just that it, it's very evocative and, and like a crying guitar solo and then it goes back into it all the way and then to the end of the album it's just a perfect end of the song and a perfect ending of the album hmm. you right. mentioned the drums here and i think we would do a disservice if we didn't mention that because you know later on we focus on Jerry Murata's playing and others that Peter uh, eventually would play with, but I think Alan, what is it, Schwartzberg? Schwartzberg, yeah. Does doesn't does an admirable job of kind of understated playing in most places, 
but at those right moments. So some of the, especially near the end of this one with the, the, a few of the toms and the playing down, it's, it's perfect for that moment. And I, I think he probably got a bit of a bad rap because he didn't keep playing with him, hmm. uh, but he should get some credit here because the album is, is quite solid on the drums. Sure. Yeah. It's uh, overall, it's good. Alan Schwartzberg also showed up on the Yes Union album for those of oh. you who are Yes fans oh. also on the ABWH tracks there. So a mm-hmm. uh, bit of drama around that album also, but we are not tabletop. Yes. So we will skip that <laughs> for now. So, so yeah, so we get, so that brings us to the end of the album. We are now at the stage where sometimes we talked about the album cover. Any Gabriel was often known, especially as things moved on, for his album covers and interesting artwork for it. What do people think about the the cover of this album? I'll be the the negative one here, I suspect, because I, I don't love all of his covers. Right. Um, the ones that I do, which are his second album, Scratch, which is brilliant. Um, the Melt, the third album, mm-hmm. so actually works, just a portrait, but mm-hmm. the look and the lighting is perfect. Even the later albums uh, have mm-hmm. some cleverness to them. This one in Security are probably my least favorite, but Security beats it by a long shot. This one just doesn't quite work for me. The color is nice. I, I get it, I, but I can't see his face. Whatever he's trying to do with his eyes hmm. doesn't work. I find that for him to come out of Genesis and to have his debut album being presented to the world with this cover was just such a missed opportunity. Hmm. Yeah, I, it's funny. People refer to this as Car. I always thought of this as the Blue Album because for me, that was the overarching tone of the artwork. And I'm again, I'm not a big album cover art guy in the first place, but, you know, yeah, this, this is fine, but it doesn't, it's not great and it's it's fine like i wouldn't say that it's not good but for me it it doesn't it doesn't show anything about the music so tom your tom, thoughts do you like this one uh, i think probably the most interesting thing is that it's storm thurgerson's car that he's sitting in oh okay which <laughs> other than that i do like the colors mm-hmm. but probably if if this had been anyone else but peter gabriel's album people probably wouldn't like it as much but right. because it's got that Peter Gabriel cachet with it uh, people kind of put it higher on a yeah, pedestal it's not memorable yeah. it's not it's not special right not not when you compare it especially with his other album covers right yeah sounds good so so Tom let's talk about do we want to talk about our own favorite tracks first or <laughs> shall we favorites yes okay let's do, do uh, David you're the guest why don't you go first yeah yeah, this, this one is actually very hard for me, probably harder than almost any other album that I can think of because the variety here yes. is so dramatic. And, you know, it, Salisbury Hill has positive memories and the Lyrical Association means a lot to me, but I perhaps overthunk that for, over overthought, overthunk <laughs> yeah. for so many decades. The Here Comes the Flood version is so nice, but upon re-listening to it, two tracks that, really stand out are humdrum and down the dolce vita and it's it's hard for me to come down between those so last night i i voted in my mind humdrum okay because it is so underappreciated and i feel like i have to represent but hearing hearing you both talk about uh, dolce vita i think god I, I just really 
would have liked to have heard that explored even more and that probably keeps it back but th- those two are about as close to a tie as I can imagine on an album alright we, we don't believe in ties but we appreciate that you talked through it and you made oh you made it you made a, a good choice a there alright yeah. humdrum for you let's uh, Tom how about you well, I think if the, if the version on this album of Here Comes the Flood had been the one that we're so used to hearing him play live, uh, I probably would have gone with more of the Burgermeister or Humdrum. But having listened to Here Comes the Flood, the studio version, a lot recently to prepare, I'm just it just blows me away that how wins. good it is. And so because it's this version and it's the studio version, it got my vote for favorite track. Okay. For me, I, I said at the beginning that... that- before listening to this album again, Moribund was kind of what I always thought of as the number one for me. Uh, it's now the number two because Dolce, Dolce Vita kind of, you know, probably where I would have had that as number two. I like it, even though I have that critique of wish it were a little bit longer, wish it, you know, had a little bit more kind of maybe just one more verse of story to it. Because I think that in this album, none of the stories conclude and so that's what I kind of like about story songs when there's an actual ending to it and these all just these end but there's not an ending to them and so I would have liked that just as a just as a small critique of it but yeah Dolce Vita is is the number one for this Uh, so Tom now that we've talked about our own favorites I think it's time to hear the percentages for your poll Tom shows you his poll I'm shows you his poll. All right. Well, it was a it was a very interesting poll. Of course. Uh, and actually, it was kind of of the nine songs on here. It was almost split down the middle, where the top four songs got most of the votes, and then there were five below who pretty much didn't get anything. Okay. And uh, I definitely appreciate the people who voted. Thank you for all your comments and watch you kind of put in a couple of your thoughts as we go through this list mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll start with the the least amount of votes which was zero <laughs> can, can <laughs> i guess one. can i guess can we guess slow burn yes sure go ahead i'm waiting for the big one excuse me really I wow somebody yeah would like that that i couldn't believe because coming in at number uh seventh place was waiting for the big one with about two percent of the vote okay i think uh i think the fact that four people voted for that one is more (laughs) offensive than nobody voting for excuse me yes i mean excuse me it's a fun song yeah anyway four people were at least able to get through eight minutes of waiting for the big one all right good good for them coming in at number six with only three percent of the vote was modern love Hmm, okay it's a a bit of a surprise it is a maybe because it's outside the norm for for peter in so many ways but it's just a good song right uh tied for fifth place with about three and a half percent was slow burn and down the dolce vita oh down the dolce vita that's sad that's all right that and that it ties with slow burn adds insult to injury right there so well maybe if they had explored down the Dolce Vita a little bit more that would it could have gotten yeah. Yeah. go back and listen to it again All right. exactly and uh, we had one comment about Slow Burn from Nick Baker he said it's the full Ezrin for me gotta mm. be Slow Burn yeah so he was one of the ones who voted for that one alright I can hear that 
All right, now we're moving into the top four, mm-hmm. and the votes go up and significantly. At fourth place, with 13%, was more than the Burgermeister. Okay. Okay. Which I could see, and I think just to quote Jeff Ferguson, he also says kind of the things we were saying. It sounds so much like something Genesis could have written, and I would think that he would have wanted to get away from that sound and style, but he still voted for his favorite track. All right, top three. Coming in at third place with 18% of the vote was Humdrum. Okay. So it's it's not super underappreciated. It's getting it's getting the bronze on no, this poll. It's so understandable that it falls behind the the better known tracks. Yeah, that's understandable. But of the lesser known tracks, it's uh, the most votes. Yeah. And coming in at number one and number two. All right. Uh, what do you think won the first spot and what got the second spot? I think hmm. the flood wins. Yeah, I, I think I think flood is going to be number one also. So. Yep, at second place was Salisbury Hill with 25% of the vote. Okay. Which I think some of the uh, the comments were like, it's a great song, but I've heard it so much right. that I think it was just uh, Salisbury Hill fatigue, which yeah. still got second place because yeah. I think people recognize what a great song it is. Yeah. But yeah, number one was Here Comes the Flood at 30%. All uh, right. That was number one. But uh, with that, I think a lot of people probably were voting for the idea of the song. Yeah. In general, right? They were voting for to, the song versus this recording. Re, yeah, yeah, they weren't saying like I was. I want the studio version. Here comes the flood. Right. That's my favorite. I think it was just like that song in general, the different versions, the piano all together. That's my favorite track. But, right. Okay, Interesting. There were no rules to the poll. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anybody can do. People vote. Can do with my poll what they yeah, want. So. Exactly. Logic is understandable because of something like the cinema show for Genesis is, you know, some people have an emotional attachment to the live when they saw that version live that carries forward when they hear it on the, on the album. So I'm I'm okay with that. I would obviously quibble with some of the, uh, some of the orders, but I understand the arguments (laughs) people brought forward. Yep. Understood. So excellent. In summing up, what are our general, you know, you know, now that we've talked through this, any kind of further revelations or anything that you didn't uh, mention that you want to kind of get in at the end here? Just a, a fantastic debut solo album yeah. uh, from a person who is looking to cut ties with the music that he was associated with just so he's not pinned down to that style for the rest of his career. Uh, and someone who has freedom now to explore new sounds, stuff that comes into his head and might have been shot down by the committee that he just escaped from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's just some solid tracks on here that just I'll revisit again as soon as we're done here because we're talking about it. I'm going to go back to Humdrum, listen to the beginning with the back and forth on yeah. the ears. I'm going to listen to that intro of Waiting for the Big One to see if he does curse. <laughs> uh, but it was just there's some solid stuff on here. So I had great effort. Yeah. Overall, I agree. I think that, you know, for a first debut solo album, it it puts his imprint saying, this is what I'm about. You're not going to know what you're going to get from me. And I mean, does he do it better later on or are there better songs on later albums? Of course there are. But it's it's a statement of intent, as we've talked about in the past. And I think this intent was if you thought you knew what you were going to get, let me surprise you. I like, I like both of those impressions, uh, and, I, and I can't disagree with that. In fact, I'm I'm probably going to also go back and listen with 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 your thoughts and mm-hmm. your impressions in mind on on those fronts. Uh, a couple, a few things strike me. One, yes, 
Peter had said that he you know, was getting frustrated by the work by committee. I get that. But one of his other reasons for leaving stated at the time was just he didn't want to be the front man. He didn't want to be the focus of attention. I don't want to be the rock star. And then he turns around within a few months and records two of the most, I think, radio friendly songs that anyone in the band, including collectively and individually, had written up to that point, which mm-hmm. are Salisbury Hill and Modern Love, which are, are two right. just good singles of the time. I'm not saying there's hypocrisy there. You know, absence makes the heart grow fonder and you go home, play with the kids for a while. You're away from the business and then you realize, damn it, I'm a musician. I I can't keep the muse inside. So I'm okay with that. Another thought I have is what this album actually tells us about what happened before and after. There's such a preview in this album of the different types of things that Peter explores. Uh, even, Even to some of the things like the Last Temptation of Christ Passion soundtrack in Ovo with that wonderful instrumental 20 seconds or so at the end before Here Comes the Flood kicks in mm-hmm. to you know all the other moments we've talked about. But also, it really reflects back on what Genesis was because there is some really simple foundational music here that I can't imagine the music being on, almost all of it being on the Genesis album. Uh, and yet the lyrics are generally pretty strong. As a writer, I appreciate the active verbs. There's almost hmm. no is or are in this entire album. It's almost all powerful verbs. Mm-hmm. So to me, it really points out just how dissociated the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway was. Hmm. That the music and the lyrics w- were separated, but to everybody, it was just Genesis. People yeah. thought that was Genesis. And in fact, that was almost two different albums that somehow magically worked pretty well together most of the time. Mm -hmm. This album really points that out because you get Peter Gabriel's lyrics, but then you listen to the music and say, holy crap, do we need to appreciate Mike and Tony and Steve and Phil for Mm -hmm. what they did in that music? Mm -hmm. And it makes you really reflect back on why the band was greater um, the whole What's the phrase? The, 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 sum the sum of the parts. Is yeah. than, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Um, and this this almost makes you tactically look at that from a music and lyrics perspective. For that, I appreciate this album almost as much as I appreciate some of the songs themselves. Right. Very good. Yeah, I think that overall, I think we liked this album. And that's, I think, that's why we're fans of this band, because it does work on, on that level and will continue to bring us good thoughts and joy for the foreseeable future with this. Right. So so as we end here, uh, we're actually recording this at the end of January. It was just announced on Friday that the, the Genesis tour happening that was rescheduled from... November, December of 2020 to April of 2021 has now, for the UK, been pushed to September, October of uh, 2021. And we actually got our first look from a short video about a minute and a half of the stage setup of the um, little bit of music from from the rehearsals and everything. Tom, I know you saw this. Uh, David, did you see this video? I have not seen it yet, but I'm fascinated, and I'll look it up right after. Yes, that. Oh. it's it's a nice preview, and and yeah. some looking it. What people always. Out the most? Well, I think people always start playing the guessing game of, oh, what's from the video wall? <laughs> you know, what could that 
uh, what could that bit of video be uh be right. showing uh i mean there's one thing that you see of something that looks like a building that looks like a domino falling so you're like hey i bet that's domino <laughs> so it's like you know it's not a super surprise right there but there are a lot of other things that it's like oh that looks good you know the band looks in good health i mean phil is obviously sitting down and everything but you know he, he looks healthy and everything so that's a positive thing tom you saw it what did you think uh, well, nothing really stood out as opposed to sat down uh, for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, obviously, uh, Phil is still doing his uh, In the Chair Tonight uh, <laughs> on a tour. Uh, but, you know, more power to him. And I think the stage looked fantastic. I yeah. think they all look great together. Uh, it, I'm very eagerly awaiting. I'm um, hoping they come to the States. Nothing's been announced so far, but mm-hmm. yeah, fingers crossed. I, David will see there's uh, two backup singers which is new mm. for the mm. band yeah uh, one of them is Peter Gabriel and the other is uh, <laughs> Steve Hackett right? right it's funny how they worked that out they were kind of hired in that respect nobody so. wants Steve as the backup singer <laughs> take your point but it's, uh, it's it was it's, it was very exciting it, yeah. it was good to see something uh, fresh out of the Genesis camp this could be the last go round so I'm, I'm going to go buy my ticket yeah. if they come around and enjoy I'm myself yep. know that I'm getting a look at the band uh, yep might be their last two ever but it's it's very exciting news yeah and it will be it will be different phil is not the singer he was 30 years ago you know that that goes without saying he is 70 years old and if people saw him on his solo tours for the past couple years it's like he can still sing these songs it's but he's not the singer he was and if you're looking for a carbon copy of the abacab tour you're not going to get that and so go in with eyes open and, you know, as I thought it was very telling, I think I said it on the podcast talking about this, the first track of Phil's solo songs, solo tours was Against All Odds, Take a Look at Me Now. It's like, this is what he is and what the band is now. And if, if that's going to bother you, then maybe these shows aren't for you. But, you know, the English show, the English tour is sold very well. You know, if it's not all sold out, it's pretty close at this point. So I think that um, that'll be a lot of fun. And for those of you over in England, I know that I'll be hopefully travel, COVID permitting, be traveling over for those. Stacy and Simon will be over for the two of the London shows also. Tom, maybe if you win the lottery, we can get you over there too. So perhaps we'll, we'll see. see. Yeah. So, so we'll go from there. So, hopefully maybe we'll do a little pub meetup somewhere with table toppers over there if people people want to bask in our presence so we'll do that but for that i think we've reached the end of our episode so david why don't you promo yourself where are you on twitter or the social medias i am at david priest that's d-a-v-i-d-p-r-i-e-s-s on twitter i do work in some Genesis puns and lines, which <laughs> yes. only Mike Lord uh, appears to catch on a regular basis. I appreciate that. Uh, so. Both on Twitter and on you know TV and other appearances, uh, we'll often text before it, and I'll say, "Okay, figure out if you can catch the, yes. the the song lyric." I work into a comment ostensibly about the presidency or national security, right. um, so that's a lot of fun. But uh, gotta say, this this has been a lot of fun, and I've learned a lot, and you, you've just given me a lot to to reflect on, and I look forward to to read listening to this and hope to have a chance to chat with you again about another yes, one definitely so well we're yes, happy thank you, thank you david this has been oh, great you. we loved having you and and i look forward to your next 
TV appearance where you work in more than the Burgermeister somehow. So yes. Good luck with that. Yes, <laughs> we have. There's the tears of of referencing Genesis, and you know, Fountain of Samalsis is another one that I would love to hear kind of worked in. I think you worked in just a job to do at one point, and maybe that's all, and misunderstanding at some point. Yeah, you know. I tried. I, I can't remember what it was. Uh, but yeah, we, I think Mike and I were conspiring. I was trying to get three into one short TV hit. Um, yes. <laughs> and I think I got Invisible Touch into one, which was awkward, but uh, most people didn't even catch it, which makes it all the more right. beautiful. Of course. Yeah, may, maybe it's gonna get better. Maybe that was one yeah, the title yeah, you did, worked yeah, in there. That, that's true. I, I remember that. that. One. The easy ones. You're right. I yeah. did try to work in telescopic umbrella. Yes. Uh, the be, Lamia, you know, that could be one also. But it's like a lamb lying down on Broadway when you think about the Trump presidency. <laughs> what? Oh well, let me correct let me correct that metaphor. So uh, thanks again for the opportunity. Excellent. It's been a blast. Excellent. When you see him on TV, be like, hey, that's the guy who was on Tabletop Genesis. So uh, we want to make you more famous for that than for being on CNN now. So so excellent. Well, thank you all for listening. This is Mike. This is Tom. And this is David. And we will see you next time. When the flood comes, you have no home, you have no warmth. In the thunder crash, you're a thousand minds within a flash. Don't be afraid to cry about your sea. The act is gone, there's only you and me And if we break before the dawn They'll use up what we used to be Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes.